This is Lee, and you're listening to the FemSouth Podcast. And we're embarking on a six-part series examining the impact of the Dobbs decision in states like Alabama, where I live, that have a near-total ban on abortion. We're looking at this issue through an intersectional lens, knowing that access to abortion isn't a single issue item. It impacts pregnant people's access to health care, pre- and postnatal care, infant mortality, women's economic and social status. It is intimately connected to sex education and consent, birth control, domestic abuse and violence, mental health, bodily autonomy, and on and on and on. Our aim is to keep this conversation in the public without fear or shame. What do you think makes a woman want to have an abortion? Well, there's probably a lot of, I'm not a woman, so I'm I'm thinking now, if I'm a woman, why would I want to, yeah. Some of it has to do with economics. A lot of it has to do with economics. I don't know. I've never, it's, it's a question I've never even thought about. You just heard a clip of Republican Representative Beakey, co-sponsor of an extreme abortion ban in Ohio. It never occurred to this legislator trying to ban abortion to even ask why why women seek them out. And even though this clip is from an interview in 2012, it perfectly illustrates why this episode is so important today. In this, our second episode, we'll be talking about the number one reason shared by most women for seeking an abortion, economics. To find out what the data tells us, we talked with two guests, Dr. Diana Green-Foster, a professor at the UCSF in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, who interviewed a thousand women with unwanted pregnancies to understand women's reasons for choosing abortion and how either receiving an abortion or being turned away impacted their lives. We also heard from Vicki Shabo, who studies the cost of raising a family in America and uses data to inform policymakers in Congress and showrunners in Hollywood. So here to help me introduce this episode are my co-hosts, Meta and Lindsay. Hey, Lee and Meta. Hey, it's nice to be back. Yeah, it's so great to be back with you two. To set up our podcast, what can our listeners expect to hear? Our guests today are rock stars. I was a little starstruck by these women, to be honest. Uh, We're going to hear them thoroughly debunk one of the biggest abortion myths and somehow they made economics i don't know really personal and easy to understand Uh, a dozen researchers worked on the turnaway study led by dr foster which the atlantic called the most important study in the abortion debate so today we'll hear how being turned away from a wanted abortion is associated with a large increase in financial hardship Uh, including an almost fourfold increase in odds that a woman's household income is below the federal poverty level compared to those who receive a wanted abortion. And women who were able to get one when asked if it was the right decision for them, the likelihood of saying yes goes from 97% a week after their abortion to 99% five years later. And that's regardless of where they stood on the abortion debate. They undeniably felt that it was the right choice for them. 
Yeah, we're also going to hear firsthand stories of going to Capitol Hill from Vicky Shabo talking to policymakers about trying to change uh, paid family leave policies and all the challenges that we face on that front. She's uh, going to share some startling insight with us on the cost of childcare compared to average incomes and really how this country fails our families when they when they need it the most, as as documented in the in the Turner study. Right. Alabama doesn't have a minimum wage. If childcare averages $7,000 a year, that is half your annual income working full time at the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. In fact, one adult in Alabama earning minimum wage with one child puts them below the poverty level. That's according to MIT's living wage calculator. What's the number one reason people give for seeking an abortion? It's finances. In states like Alabama, where pregnant people already suffer from inequitable access, we can expect to see health and economic disparities get even worse directly because of the abortion ban. So investing in kids and parents helps create stability to raise a family. This is all part of reproductive justice, right? Yes. And we're going to hear about how financial independence is really difficult for women to achieve if forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy. And can tether one to a violent or toxic partner for life. So this episode is really personal to me because as someone that has had an abortion and raised two kids when I was financially able to do so, I understand making decisions based on financial dependency. Um, My capacity to resource my kids now because I was able to go to college and start a career has everything to do with being able to get an abortion. And so I... I simply would not be where I am today without it. It is such a personal decision, and it underscores that people don't make these decisions lightly, unlike that Ohio representative, right? We just need to trust women. In fact, the last section of the Turnaway study is titled Trust Women. Yeah, so let's hear what these women have to say. Let's do it. To help us break down the economic impact of being denied an abortion are two special guests that have done tremendous work around reproductive and family justice, Dr. Diana Green Foster and Vicki Shabo. Dr. Foster is a professor and demographer at the University of California, San Francisco. She was named one of Nature Magazine's top 10 scientists in 2022. As a part of ANSWER, Dr. Foster studies the effectiveness of family planning policies and the effects of unwanted pregnancy on women's lives. She is the principal investigator of the Turnaway study, which followed a thousand women across 10 years to gauge the consequences of having or being denied a wanted abortion. Some of her publications just in the last year include Health and Economic Consequences of the End of Roe and New abortion bans will increase existing health and economic disparities. Vicki Shabo is a gender equity expert, policy advocate, and coalition builder who has helped to win paid leave, paid sick time, equal pay, and pregnancy fairness policies. At the Better Life Lab of New America, Shabo works closely with policymakers, advocates, researchers, and journalists. She is an advisor to the Pay Leave for All campaign, 
previously served on the advisory committee of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Paid Family and Medical Leave Task Force. She also advises entertainment industry creatives on telling stories more reflective of people's lived experiences and shifting narratives about the role of government in advancing inclusive work family justice. It's an honor to have you both join us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we are really excited to have you join us here today to talk about the economic impact of the overturn of Roe and the uh, subsequent abortion bans in states like here in uh, Alabama. To set up the podcast for our listeners that may be unfamiliar with your work, can you provide a brief overview of what your organizations do? Sure. My I work for the University of California, San Francisco, and ANSWER is a research group within the university that makes sure that our debates about abortion and contraception and HIV and a bunch of other reproductive health issues are grounded in evidence. So we're social science researchers who study reproductive health. And this is Vicki. I'm with the Better Life Lab, which is the Work Family Justice, Gender Equity, and Care Program at New America. Uh, New America is a think tank. Uh, I'm based in Washington, D.C. We've got folks here and in places across the country. Um, and my work focuses on policy, advocacy, narrative, and culture change, as well as helping to translate research into action. Thank you. I mean, you both are doing such amazing work, and I think that your work really complements each other, which is, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to have both of you on here to talk about this. But I think it also shows just how broad this topic is and how personal it is. And so just to get us kind of started in the conversation, I wanted to read a quote that I think gets really at the heart of what we're talking about here today. And this is a quote from the Turnaway Study. The most common reason women seek abortion in America is because they can't afford to raise a child or more often another child. So Diana, this first question is for you. Can you tell us about the Turnaway Study? What is it? What were you trying to understand and learn with that study? So in about 2007, the major debate in the country was whether abortion hurts women. And the idea that abortion does hurt women had been the motivation for restrictions on abortion. And so the goal of the Turnaway Study was to actually look at what are the consequences for people who get abortions. And then the only reasonable comparison group for that is people who want abortions. They were in exactly the same circumstances, but weren't able to get them. And that's what the Turnaway Study did. It recruited people who were a little too far along in pregnancy to get their abortion, people who were just under the limit who did get their abortion, and followed them for five years, interviewing them every six months about their health, economic well-being, the health and development of their children, their aspirations. So just to be clear, then, you're looking at two different groups, one who got their abortion and one who did not, who were denied. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. And this is the only study of its kind, right? It's the only study of its kind in the United States. Uh, there was a very long ago, a study in um, what was then Czechoslovakia of children born because the mother was denied an abortion. So it's not the first ever, but it is the only relevant to our time period and country. Wow. And your study predates the overturn of Roe. 
And so it's really great that we have all this data now. And in fact, Diana, you use this data to debunk the common misconceptions used by anti-abortion activists. And I think one of the biggest myths has to do with why. And so can you help us understand, according to your study, why women choose abortions? Sure. I think the myth that uh, you're referring to is the idea that uh, women are irresponsible when they're making the decision to terminate a pregnancy. And what we found through actually asking people who are seeking abortion what their reasons were for wanting to end a pregnancy is that they're considering all of their own responsibilities and their own aspirations in making this decision and deciding whether this is the right time to have a baby. So as you said, the leading reason has to do with feeling that you don't have enough money to support another child. But there are other reasons that also show that uh, people who are pregnant are considering their responsibilities to others. So the, for example, that they need to focus on the children they already have or that their relationship isn't strong enough to support a child. Do you feel that when you explain these kind of um, reasons that you're sort of listing here, that some of the policymakers that are introducing the abortion bans and the heartbeat bills that we are currently seeing, do you feel that there is an understanding of those kind of circumstances that lead to abortion that you just mentioned? I would say definitely not. Uh, One of the authors of most of the restrictions in Ohio, a state senator uh, once was asked in an Al Jazeera documentary about abortion, what he thought the reasons people sought abortions were. And even though he'd authored restrictions on abortion, he just looked completely blankly at the interviewer and chuckled and said, well, he'd never considered it before. And that was many years ago. And just recently, um, Senator Kennedy asked uh, in a Senate Judiciary Committee meeting, he asked one of the people testifying to imagine that he ju- he was a pregnant person who just randomly decided that she didn't want to be pregnant anymore. This like, you know, assumption of thoughtlessness when it, the exact opposite is true, that people think about this carefully and are have their minds made up because they've taken their own considerations into effect, into account. So Vicky, your research is around the cost of childcare and the impact of paid family and medical leave. New America, they put out a care report looking at the costs of childcare in states across the nation, and you co-authored a report on health, work, and care in rural America. Can you talk about the data that supports how financially difficult it is to raise a child, especially in rural states like Alabama, and how states sort of in general continue to fail to support families? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I think I think Diana's study, the Turnaway study, just makes so clear the economic implications of having being forced to have a child versus uh, being able to determine your own future, whether that's education or continuing to work. And you know, what we know is raising a child is living is expensive. Raising a child is expensive. Wages in general haven't kept up with the cost of living. Uh, We know that women, on average, are paid less than men for doing similar work, and that is especially true for women of color. And that all magnifies to a place where having a child is an economic decision and resources are constrained. So uh, the states that have, have banned or severely restricted abortion are also states that have not 
provided paid family and medical leave programs. They're not states that have invested in childcare. Most of them are not states that have insured health insurance to people beyond a period of pregnancy. They you know, don't necessarily provide pre-K and there aren't rules around jobs and around um, predictability, flexibility, stability of work schedules. And all of that adds up to a lot of precarity for families. More tangibly, you know, the cost of raising a child in the U.S. is estimated to be somewhere between $15,000 and $17,000 a year, adding up to close to $300,000 from birth to age 17. This is according to the uh, United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA. This is different maybe for low-income families and single-parent households because those estimates are based on a a middle-income, two-income household. But things like Food, childcare, clothing, these are fixed expenses. I did a little bit of digging. Alabama has lower costs for raising a child in every other state, but it's still $15,000 a year as of 2021, $1,300 in rent, $1,400 in food, $7,300 in infant childcare, more than $2,000 in transportation, and $2,000 in insurance, among other things. So there are real practical implications. And so, you know, what we see from policymakers and especially policymakers that have restricted or banned abortion and made reproductive health decisions very difficult is that they also don't believe generally in government that supports people who are having and raising children. And that really creates a conundrum and I think calls into sharp relief, like who we are as a country and what we value and, you know, sort of leads one to conclude that perhaps this is about power and control and not about values that are often discussed as sort of the the reason for restricting choice and autonomy. Yeah, I I was just looking at some of the stats too from your study. I think people also don't realize how rural Alabama is. Your study says that Alabama is 41% rural. Yeah. And that's only one estimate. There's like a different estimate I I saw as well, because rural is defined differently by different government agencies. But what that means is, you know, childcare is really hard to get. About 60% of Alabama families live in a childcare desert where there are three or more children for every childcare spot. Childcare costs are going up and then went up more during COVID and rural areas have less access to childcare than other areas. Things like paid leave, um, which I've spent a lot of time working on, paid leave to care for a new child or an ill family member or to take sick time, less likely in the South and in rural areas than in other parts of the country. And even unpaid leave is not really either available or accessible. About 63% of Alabamians are not covered or can't afford unpaid leave, even if they're covered, even if they could take it under the Family and Medical Leave Act. And then you couple all of that, and this is the the topic of the study that I did with Hannah Friedman from the University of North Carolina and Dr. Aaron Kent from the University of North Carolina, but distances to travel to healthcare are much longer. So we looked at distances to travel to hospital-based care of different kinds. We broke the data out by state in a few places, and so this isn't published, but in Alabama, Hospital-based obstetrics care is two and a half times further from rural census tracts than from urban ones. So 36 miles on average versus 15 miles for urban folks. For people in high concentration census tracts with high concentrations of Black people and other census tracts that have high rates of persistent poverty, 
these distances are even further, 41 and 43 miles, respectively. So essentially, you're telling pregnant people that they cannot get abortion care. And also when it's time to deliver a baby, if they need a hospital, they've got to travel really, really far. Similarly, if their child, if their baby is in the NICU, they need to travel nearly 50 miles if they're in a rural area, um, more than 25 miles, 27 miles if they're in an urban area. And then for areas of high concentration of Black population in rural Alabama, they've got to travel on average 53 miles. So you're talking about really, really sizable travel burdens that are exacerbated by things like lack of access to paid leave and, you know, myriad other economic factors. Yeah, that data is so compelling. I was really shocked when I read it. So thank you for having that. So next question, uh, this one's for you, Diana. So the turnaway shows that the majority of women seeking an abortion are mothers who already have one or more children in the home. Your study looks specifically at the impact of family planning and outcomes for women and children. So my question is kind of a two-part question. The first part of that question is essentially what we're talking about, which is what is the impact, the economic impact of being forced to have an unwanted pregnancy, according to your study? And the second part of that question then is what is the economic impact of being able to plan when to have a family and have the children when one is ready? Uh, thanks so much for the question. I think it's really great. And just to reframe a little bit that I think that it's a heartbreaking situation when somebody wants a child and feels they don't have the financial resources to support a child. And we as citizens and we as fellow human beings should do everything we can to help low-income parents who want to parent. And it's not irresponsible to have kids. It's it's a hopeful act to support the children that you want to have. And in the Turnaway study, we find that although economics are the leading reason people give for wanting to have an abortion, it's almost never the only reason. So people are seeking to end pregnancies that they didn't want, that they weren't ready for, where the other life circumstances weren't good either. And sometimes being able to get that wanted abortion means those better circumstances are able to emerge. So what we found is that when somebody is unable to get an abortion, they are much more likely to fall below the federal poverty level. They are more likely to report that they don't have enough money for basic living needs. And it's not just the woman who suffers economically, but her existing children and, um, and the child born when she wasn't ready to, to have another child or to have a child. So we see that existing children are more likely to fall below the federal poverty level to live in households where there isn't enough money for basic living needs that Vicki outlined. And then also that those children are less likely to achieve developmental milestones. So it's this hardship has real long-term impact. And then when we look at the child born because the mom was denied an abortion and we compare that child's well-being to the next child born to someone who got an abortion. So this really demonstrates the benefits of being able to wait, of, of being able to have kids when you feel that you're ready to have kids with a maybe a better partner or more stable housing. Nothing is ever perfect when you're trying to have a kid. No one has everything. But deciding that the conditions are right to have a kid makes all the difference. And so when we see the benefits of people being able to determine their own decisions about childbearing, 
we see those kids are less likely to live in poverty if their mom was able to get a wanted abortion. Um, the moms report better maternal bonding with their children. So it's an emotional decision. It's an economic decision. And denying people the ability to control their childbearing actually hurts women and it hurts children. So yeah, let, let's talk a little bit more about the ability to determine one's life trajectory uh, that you that you just touched upon. So according to your to, to your study, most most women, about 70% actually, that seek an abortion, they are between the ages of 15 and 30. And as you say in, in your book, and I quote, these are the years when we decide who we are, the decisions we make to go to school, to learn a trade, to pursue a career to settle down with a romantic partner, to have children, to form a new life dream, reverberate for the rest of our lives. Um, that was a quote from your, from your book. So when we look at your study and we look at the women that were able to access an abortion versus the one that were denied, what is the difference in, in the women's life trajectory, not just the ones of their children, but, but, the, but the women's trajectory in terms of pursuing an education or a career or, or really pursuing their dreams, really. Yeah, so I mentioned the economic reasons for, for wanting to have an abortion, but often people give other reasons like wanting to be in a higher quality romantic relationship or achieving educational goals, finding a better job, finding more stable housing. And when we actually ask people what their aspirations are for the coming year, women are more likely to give us an aspirational plan for the coming year if they receive that abortion than if they deny it. And that's including child-rearing-related aspirational plans. And so we can see it in, for example, in educational attainment. We don't see a difference in the chance that the woman graduated or dropped out of school. But if she received that wanted abortion, she's more likely to achieve a higher-level degree. So maybe a two-year college as opposed to a technical school or a four-year college instead of a two-year college. So we see them set higher aspirational plans if they get that abortion, and then we actually see they're more likely to achieve those plans. So it's, it's uh, you know, it changes your life course. I think that would be a surprise to nobody that having a kid, whether you plan it or not, but having a kid changes your life course. And the question is, are women in control of that decision or is the government in control of that decision? Right. And your study actually shows with, with proof that when you are able to access that abortion, you can, you can aspire, you can, you can look ahead. Whereas if, if you were not able to, that's not often a sort of a, a privilege that, that you're given. Yeah. And I would just add to that. I think it's really important to understand how difficult it is to even finish high school. For one, we know that's problematic and difficult, but even going to college, like your first year of college, for example, most colleges want you to live in a dorm. And so when you're talking about, especially with young people who are denied access to an abortion, I mean, that really is impacting their capacity to get an education on so many different levels. And that's like, that's like the starting point of fulfilling your life's dreams, because without that, you know, it gets even more difficult to do anything other than minimum wage work. It so. used to be that schools would kick you out when you became pregnant. And we've, we've improved dramatically since those days. I mean, now many schools have 
programs to keep people in school, to help support them, but it's not enough. And the bigger problem is that people should get to decide for themselves. We can see that it affects the level of education that they're able to achieve when they're unable to get an abortion. And, you know, improving our schools to support pregnant people is something we should do regardless of abortion law. Yes. Vicki, I think that your work has a lot to do with this conversation as well in terms of providing paid family and medical leave. You hit on that already a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about how difficult it is to access and keep a quality job and why that quality job is so important in terms of being able to access family paid leave? Sure. Well, just to take a step back, the United States is the only high wealth country that does not guarantee paid family and medical leave, particularly paid leave for new birthing people to mothers, most commonly. Um, we're one of a handful of high wealth countries that doesn't provide paid parental leave to dads or to adoptive parents. We're one of two countries, high wealth countries, that doesn't provide paid sick leave. Um, and there's a stat that we are the only country, uh, only one of six countries in the entire world that doesn't provide paid maternity leave. So the baseline here is zero weeks of paid leave. About 56% of workers have access to unpaid job protected leave through the Family and Medical Leave Act. But most people can't afford to take unpaid leave. And 44% of the workforce doesn't even have a job guarantee when they need to take time to um, care for themselves or a loved one or to care for a new baby. And we know that people in rural communities, workers who make lower wages, less educate folks with less formal education, and single parents are even less likely to have access to unpaid leave. So that's, again, unpaid leave, job protection, but no money. That is a hardship. And uh, I think I said before, but it's worth repeating, 63% of people in Alabama either aren't covered by the FMLA with that job protection and unpaid leave or will fall into economic hardship if they take unpaid leave. So that is the baseline. That means that most people, and in the South, all people, are dependent on their employers to have any type of paid leave, whether we're talking about paid sick leave, which even that, only 75% uh, of workers in the U.S. have paid sick leave, but only about half of service workers have paid sick leave. That is time to deal with going to a prenatal appointment if you are a pregnant person, or to stay home with a sick child, for example. So lots of precarity in terms of workplaces. Uh, about 25% of workers have paid dedicated paid family leave through their jobs to care for a new child, about 40% of people have access to short-term disability insurance through an employer that gives you usually like 60 to 70% of your pay after pregnancy or to prepare for pregnancy uh, and recover from childbirth uh, or for any other type of temporary disability. So upshot is most people do not have paid leave to deal with caring for a child. And people who are in lower wage jobs are even less likely to have access to paid leave. What that means is that people who have given birth are returning to work soon after having their babies. I actually just spent an entire day on Capitol Hill yesterday with five moms who had been profiled by Glamour Magazine for the 28 days after they had given birth. And many of them went back to work within two weeks of giving birth, which is the case for 
of women in the US, according to the Department of Labor, to a study that was done in 2012. So you have people who are going back to work bleeding. Um, you have people who are needing to find childcare arrangements for tiny infants, um, whether that's leaving an infant with a family member or cobbling together some way of getting care for this child. Infant care is super, super hard to find in an institutional setting. Sometimes people use family, friend, and neighbor care or informal child care, but the psychological and physical challenges of going back to work so soon are dire to say, and tragic, to say the least. And then you have people who will take a longer period of time but will fall into financial hardship. They'll have to dip into savings or go decide what bills to pay and what bills not to, you know, what bills to sort of let go to collect to collection or to letting it lapse. Fathers in the U.S. for people who are in opposite sex relationships, 95% of dads in the U.S. take two weeks or less of leave because we still have these gendered expectations and there's stigma around men providing care, even though we know from research that we've done at New America and from other research that men want to be more active caregivers in their children's lives, but policy and culture might hold them back. When women do have access to paid leave, they are better able to recover and heal, less likely to suffer postpartum depression, more likely to breastfeed. Babies tend to be taken to health appointments more regularly and to get the immunizations that they are supposed to get. And then there's research from California, which has uh, one of the two handfuls of paid leave policies in the U.S. We've got research there that shows that um, shaken baby syndrome goes down, maternal health and child health outcomes are improved. So there's all sorts of reasons why paid leave matters. But the unfortunate reality is that, you know, as I said before, the states that have restricted or entirely banned abortion access also do not have paid family and medical leave guarantees for their workers. And that means that people are left to play the boss lottery if they have a job or maybe they're leaving work. And that causes a whole other set of economic challenges. And I've written about this before. What I think is really, you know, unfortunately, beyond unfortunate is we're treating a, like very personal reproductive health decisions as public in a way that is completely inappropriate. And yet we provide no sense that childcare or paid leave are public issues and instead continue to treat them as private, even though there are significant implications to individuals, families, businesses, and the economy of our failure to make those investments. So the last thing I'll say is Alabama already has lower women's labor force participation than other states in the U.S. Um, I think it's about 52% of working age women in Alabama who are in the workforce compared to 56% nationwide, and it's the lowest in the Southeast. So that, that again, causes a lot of other challenges. And all of this is connected and none of it is good for uh, women, children, and families. Oh, that's a really interesting stat that you mentioned there at the end, that only 52% of women are participating in the workforce. I didn't actually know it was that low. That is startling. Um, when, when we think about that and we think about how that only, really only a little more than half of all women are able to, or not able to, but but as a fact, work in Alabama and are able to, um, to generate an income and, and provide for themselves. When you are forced to then care for a child with all of those financial burdens that come from that, I'm sure that it can create a, a, a dependence on, on the partner then. It leaves a lot of that up to 
to the partner that you're with if you at that point still have a partner and it can create a lot of interdependence. Diana, can you talk a little bit about the uh, sort of the financial dependence that you have found happens with women and, and their partners in the cases where, where they're forced to, uh, to go ahead um, with a pregnancy? Sure. So we interviewed a 24-year-old from New York who was denied an abortion and carried the pregnancy to term and tried to parent the child, but eventually placed the child for adoption um, because she, she wanted to raise a child at that point and could not. And what she told us sums up all of these issues. She said, it's very, very difficult to find a job when you're pregnant, to keep a job when you're pregnant, and to find or maintain a job with a baby especially if your partner is a douchebag and doesn't want to help. So domestic violence skyrockets because you're financially dependent on your partner because you have to be home with the kid where you're like, I can't be homeless with this kid. I need him for money. Pregnancy is an incredibly scary thing, especially if you cannot trust the person you're with. So she really ties all of this together in just telling about her own story where she couldn't get a job because she was pregnant. So she was financially dependent on someone who actually was violent. And then she was stuck. She was needing him for money. And so she wasn't able to trust him with the child to um, leave and be on her own because she didn't, she couldn't support a child while um, having a newborn or being pregnant. So we find that about a third of people say their reason for wanting to, an abortion is the has something to do with the man involved. And when women are in violent relationships, which one in 20 of the women in our study were, we find that if they're able to get an abortion, violence from the man involved in the pregnancy drops off precipitously. But if they're denied that abortion, it's level. So they continue to be exposed to violence. Um, it doesn't go up, but it doesn't go down when they carry that pregnancy to term. And why is because they have ongoing contact with that man that they could have broken free from if they'd been able to get that abortion. And in fact, you know, the, the women who carry that pregnancy to term over the long run aren't more likely to be in a relationship, still in a relationship with that man. The relationships weren't good to start with, but having a child means ongoing contact. So even if they're not in a romantic relationship anymore, that she still is exposed to that risk of violence. That makes me think about how oftentimes in the study, we found then that the women were left raising the children on their own. Vicki, when you are looking at the gender wage gap, how do you see what we're talking about here with abortion access and reproductive justice intersecting with your work on equalizing the gender wage gap? Um, that's a great question. Again, it's like all, all connected. So the, the wage, we often talk about the gender wage gap or the intersectional gender race wage gap, just to name what it is. Um, the Alabama Workforce and Wage Gap Task Force in 2022 found that women are paid 67 cents for every dollar that a man is paid in Alabama. For Black women, it's 52 cents compared to a white man. For Latinas, it's 41 cents compared to a white man. In other words, women of color are making half or less than white men in Alabama. So there's a lot of reasons that the wage gap exists, right? Some of it is about job occupational segregation and which jobs people are in. Some of it is about working part-time rather than full-time or fewer hours rather than more hours. 
Some of it is about discrimination. When it comes to mothers, we know that there's a motherhood penalty in wages. So mothers are paid less than men and less than dads. Men tend to see a bump up in wages, whereas women tend to see their wages go down. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it's tied into childcare. Women do the disproportionate share of caregiving for children and families. And that's sometimes just a self-perpetuating cycle because women are earning less. It makes more sense for them to take a step back. Culturally, women might feel that they should or have to take a step back. So it's all, it's all, it's all connected. But certainly having the choice about whether and when to become a parent puts more autonomy and control in the hands of a person who is then going to become a parent or become a parent for a second or a third time. And these are economic decisions. We talked about the incredible costs of childcare in the U.S. because we don't invest in childcare in public policy in the way that we should. Childcare providers who themselves tend to be women and women of color overwhelmingly are poorly paid, certainly not paid commensurate with the value that they're providing in educating young children and caring for young children. And um, yeah, when we don't invest in childcare, that means that it's typically women who take a step back from work or turn down promotions, all of the things that contribute to, to lower wages. But the other piece that's really important is also like women's wages are very important to households. So um, again, for some Alabama specific stats, 83% of black mothers 45% of white mothers, 37% of Latina mothers are either the sole breadwinner in households in Alabama or contribute at least 40% of earnings. So again, we like we see the interconnectedness of all of these issues with respect to care, to economics, to children's well-being, and to economic security and opportunity. And so much of that comes down to reproductive health decisions um, and choices, or on the flip side, to restrictions. On, on autonomy and force, forcing people to have births that they maybe can't afford or, yeah, for all the reasons that Diana's talked about, just can't manage at a particular time. And Vicki, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to talk about your work with media representation in film and television. Can you speak to that and why it's so important to have that kind of representation? Yeah. So this is a, a new area of work for us. We launched an entertainment-focused uh, narrative and culture change practice last year to complement the journalistic work that we did. And this is really a passion of mine. I've been working at the, on the front lines of public policy for a very long time. And you know, we uh, saw Congress come closer than ever to passing a national paid family and medical leave program and historic investments in childcare in 2021 and 2022. And ultimately those pieces that were passed in the House of Representatives failed to get the agreement of Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia who sided with 50 Republicans to say uh, that he was not gonna support these investments. And I think that part of the reason why that happened, and it isn't just him, but it is a sort of an, a sense that policies related to family and families' economic security and gender equity are less important than things like healthcare, climate, and other issues that are squarely in the public realm. All of these things are important, I would argue. But the fact that it is easy to think about things like paid leave 
and childcare investments as sort of side issues rather than core to the economic well-being of families in the country. It's part of how we think about these things. We think about them as very individual. It's you know my fault that I can't figure out childcare. My fault that I need to, to take time to you know to recover from childbirth and care for that child or a, or an older family member. And so we launched this project called Rescripting Gender Work, Family, and Care to try to work with entertainment industry creators and executives to help encourage them to tell more and better stories about gender, work, family, and care. And in the reproductive health context, it's also, you know, there's a lot of showrunners who got very interested in telling accurate abortion stories after Dobbs. And some of Diana's colleagues at the Abortion on Screen Project do a lot of this work and in telling accurate abortion stories. And that is super, super important. And there's been a number of shows that have done a nice job of that recently. So real quick, can you give an example of how abortion has usually sort of been portrayed and, and stigmatized and how you're trying to, to to change that? Yeah. And the abortion piece of this is definitely more Diana's colleagues' expertise, but I've gotten to know a lot from them about how often, you know, I the people who are having abortions are misrepresented. The abortion decision is misrepresented in all in some of the ways that Diana mentioned at the beginning, that that it's just not accurate, that it's often seen as like this sort of um fraught decision instead of one that is about self-empowerment and joy and sort of like relief and the right decision. And so um Grey's Anatomy, for example, just did a, a storyline where they went to uh, Station 19, went to a crisis pregnancy center and sort of had this person there who wasn't even a medical provider who was like peddling all sorts of misinformation and they called her out. So there's there's more and more of this. But what is not happening is telling the context about how it is that the U.S. doesn't provide for families very well. So it's very, very rare to have somebody talk about the fact that childcare isn't available or that paid leave isn't available or what are they going to do in their job? In the abortion context, that's what I'm encouraging showrunners to do more of. But in general, what I would really love to see is for TV characters to start to question why we are in this situation. If they're articulating like the guilt that people feel about about being parents or about, you know, having to take time away from work to care for a family member, If that character is articulating that they feel guilty about this, to have some other character in the scene raise the question, why and why is it like this? There's 53 million people in the U.S. that provide care to themselves or a loved one. There are, you know, tens of millions of children who are born into families where all available adults are working. This is normal. What's not normal is the ways in which our country doesn't support the normalcy of work and care with investments and rules that make it possible for people to be both responsible workers and responsible parents and caregivers. Yeah, that that's that's really interesting. Like how how that narrative on 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 TV and and hopefully also in the public in the public opinion is is, is changing. So Diana, I I know that with the turnaway study that uh, that you're taking your findings and your and your data to try and influence public opinion as well in, in, in many different ways. Can you talk a little bit about how you sort of carry the findings of your uh, of your study forward and how you're trying to influence public opinion and, and hopefully change? 
I don't know that I'm trying to influence public opinion per se. It really seems like most Americans are in favor of people having the right to access abortion care. And that's amazing to me, given how much stigma exists around this issue. And the only explanation I can think is that people know other people who've had abortions and they understand how someone could be in the situation of needing an abortion. What I have tried to do is inform policymakers so that policymakers have the evidence that they don't have to rely on ideology, that they can think about this carefully and think about what the consequences of restricting access to abortion would be. And so the data from the Turnaway study has been used in court cases. It's been used in amicus briefs to help inform the Supreme Court. And uh, on both the health and economic consequences, we've barely talked about the health implications, but carrying a pregnancy to terms associated with serious physical health risk, which also affects people's ability to economically support themselves. So I am trying to make sure that the data that we collect is not just an academic exercise. And we're proud of our fancy publications in top medical and sociological journals, but that definitely isn't enough in this day and age that it's important to disseminate results to policymakers, to judges, and try and make sure that when we make policies for all America, that those policies don't harm families. I just want to say, too, that I really like that you say that you are trying to personalize and not just run with academic data, but you have these personal stories in the Turnaway Study book. And I think that that's really one of the powerful components is the combination of the personal story, the personal testimony from the voices of the women themselves and the data. Yeah, I totally agree. It's not enough to just have statistics. It's really important to hear from the people who are affected by this. So would we to just wrap up, Vicky, while we still have you here, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the kind of advocacy work that uh, that New America is is doing in terms of influencing policymakers? You did mention before that you had been on Capitol Hill and some of the work you're doing. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of a little bit more detail on what it is that you are doing to influence uh, policy in, in this area? Yeah, so New America works with policymakers, works with researchers, aggregates data and evidence to support research-based policy proposals. Um, and then, you know, I testify in Congress and write public opinion pieces to try to influence policy debates. And really quick uh, here at the end, do you feel that that the policymakers you go up in front of to to share this kind of research? Do you feel like they're listening? Do you feel like you're getting through? I mean, that might be an <laughs> open-ended question. Can you can you talk to that real quick? I think there are a lot of policymakers in Congress that feel very strongly uh, that we need better policies and public opinion across all parties, all people, all regions is overwhelmingly supportive of policies like paid leave and childcare. And yet we still see this ideological divide in Congress. And so what we really need is for elected officials of all parties to listen to constituents, to look at the data, to look at the evidence around why these policies are necessary for families, for children, for businesses, even for the economy, and start to put common sense policies in place. And to realize, you know, we often hear concerns about the cost of these policies, but what I think is not taken into account nearly enough is the cost of doing nothing and the ways in which individuals, families, 
the economy, again, are being held back by our failure to make investments in people and policies that support them. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like policies promoting families is a really a bipartisan no-brainer. I mean, we should be able to, at the very least, agree on the fact that we are not doing enough to support families. And the data proves this, right? Like, the socioeconomic hardships are going to get worse, not better, because of abortion bans. I want to pivot, though, and talk about hope, because we do like to end our episodes on a positive note, if there is one. So, Vicki, can you share with us what gives you hope in your work? For me, uh, the hope is in a couple places. So one, seeing the response to Dobbs, the back, the sort of assertion of the majority opinion, which is that abortion should be legal. The fact that we saw Supreme Court candidate elected in Wisconsin, who is going to stop some bad things from happening. Kansas voters and the amendment that was on the ballot there last year. This gives me hope. You know, I, I think we could see some some positive things come as a result of the massive overstepping that happened in Dobbs in overturning 50 years of Supreme Court precedent. Um, the other thing that gives me hope is honestly positive things that are happening in states. You know, I mentioned that some states have paid family and medical leave programs. When I started working in this area 14 years ago, there were two states that had paid family and medical leave programs. We've now got 11 plus DC and Within a few weeks, we should have a 12th. Um, Minnesota is very, very close to having a law enacted. So that gives me hope, but it's not enough because we know that there are states that have never and will never pass family-friendly policies. And that's why we need national paid family medical leave. We need nationwide child care investments. And you know, we certainly need a reinstatement of abortion rights. Thank you, Vicki. How about you, Diana? What gives you hope in your work right now? A couple things give me hope. One is that the word about medication abortion really got out. And so I think we've seen fewer people resorting to self-harm than I expected. People go to sites like INeedAnA.org or PlanCPills.org and can find the nearest place to travel to or safe ways of ending a pregnancy. And so that's one thing is that just the availability of medication abortion has enabled people to not resort to dangerous methods. And the other thing is just trusting women, trusting people's decision-making in this, that even when faced with hardship, people do the best they can to raise the kids they've got. And, you know, we don't have the best policies to support parents. And um, yet folks dedicate themselves to doing the best they can and, this is a hard time, and I think lots of families will experience hardship, but I trust people's decision-making, and I think that folks will do the best they can raising kids they weren't even prepared for, and I hope that our government rises to the occasion and improves child support laws, improves health care after pregnancy, public support for low-income families, that we could, there's a lot we could do to to help meet people's needs and to help people live their best lives and support their children. And real quick, Diana, is there a future turnaway study on the on the way for a post row? So I am trying to study the the impact of the Dobbs decision. I've recruited the last people served in nine states 
before their legal clinic closed. And we've been recruiting people who sought abortions after that from those same facilities or from through helplines. It's not the turnaway study again, because this turnaway study really was about birth versus abortion. And this one's about what is it like when you can get a legal abortion in your state versus you have to travel hundreds of miles or you have to find a way to get pills online or you try resort to self-harm or you carry that pregnancy to term. There's just a lot more outcomes and who gets information about how to do safe things and who is doesn't, you know, who is being most harmed by these policies, whether it's immigrants or minors or people with disabilities or people who are under court supervision. There are all sorts of people who aren't able to travel, who have economic hardship that will be most likely to bear the brunt of these decisions that make regular medical care more difficult to get. And when are you uh, expecting findings from that study to come out? Is it sort of ongoing or is it is it sort of a little little ways out still? It's quite a ways out for official findings, but if we generate data that show who's most harmed, we will be releasing it right away to try and inform harm reduction strategies. And um, as soon as I have those sort of data, everyone will hear about it. In the very short term, I can tell you that the people who are able to access abortion care quickly are people who have access to cars. And so if you think of everyone who can't afford a car that can go 200 miles, that those are the people who are most at risk of doing something dangerous or you know, experiencing the ongoing hardships associated with forced pregnancy. Thank you. We'll definitely help share those findings as soon as they become available. Thank you so much, both of you, for being on the show with us, for sharing the information and for just continuing to do this amazing work because it's so important right now. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. What an important conversation and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you both Lee and, and Meta for um, having us on the show and for really raising these issues of the experience of parenthood, experience of pregnancy in this post-Dobbs world. Thank you. You've been listening to the FemSouth podcast and our six-part series on the impact of the Dobbs decision in Alabama, produced by Fems Act, an activist wing of FemSouth. FemSouth is an intersectional book club, community, and podcast, and now activist team dedicated to demystifying the feminist movement and amplifying Southern women's voices. Our mission is to educate, integrate, and activate. If you would like to learn more about FemSouth, you can follow us on Instagram. You can head over to our link tree and find all the different ways in which you can join our mission and participate. You can also ask to join our private Facebook book club group, where we talk about the books that we're reading and provide information about the events that we're sponsoring. As we continue to talk about the important impact of the overturn of Roe, it is important for us to say that we are not here to help anyone in accessing an abortion, and we do not offer any abortion services. If you would like to learn more information, though, you can head over to our link tree on Instagram. So follow us on Instagram at FemSouth. Click on our link tree where you can access our full and comprehensive list of reproductive justice information. You can also find out more information about us by going to femsouth.com. You can reach out to us at femsouth at gmail.com. And you can support us at patreon.com at femsouth or femsouth on Venmo or PayPal.
Thank you for joining us. And until next time, you're listening to Fem South.